Hello and welcome to our Saturday broadcast. Today is Asalha Purnami, the day of the full moon in the month of Asalha. It's also known as Asalha Puja because it's a day of paying homage in the month of Asalha. And we pay homage to the Buddha, to the Dhamma, to the Sangha on Asalha Punami because the full moon in Asalha was when the Buddha gave his first teaching, turning the wheel of Dhamma. The most famous Buddhist holiday is Visakha. Visaka Punami, Visaka Puja, the day of paying respect to the Buddha on in the month of Visaka. That's when the Buddha became enlightened. It's also supposed to have been his birthday and the day when he attained Parinibbana. But Asalaha Puja is important where enlightenment is the theme of Asalaha, on, or of Visaka, the theme of Asalaha is teaching. It's when the Buddha finally was able to share his teaching effectively to teach those who could understand it was when he gained his first disciple his first Arya Savaka enlightened disciple So after the Buddha became enlightened and spending seven weeks in the area around the Bodhi tree, he traveled by foot to Varanasi. He was, he was disinclined to teach in the beginning, knowing how difficult it would be after all that time and all the effort he had put into becoming enlightened, once he became enlightened, the realization came to him that it would be difficult to teach. Most people wouldn't even understand. People are bent, intent on sensual sensuality, bent on rebirth and becoming for people to let go would be a very hard thing. He was invited to teach, and he reflected that there would indeed be some people with little dust in their eyes who would be able to see with just a little bit of support. And he said, for those people I will teach. And then he considered, who would it be that could best appreciate his teachings and benefit from it? And he thought of his two teachers, Alara Kalama 
and Udakarama Putta. But he realized that both of them had passed away. They had gone on to be born in the Brahma world as godlike beings, and they were living such refined and exquisitely sublime lives that they wouldn't be able to realize the impermanence of even their own existence. And they said they wouldn't be very good recipients of the teaching because they wouldn't be able to realize that eventually. Eventually they would have to come back. Eventually they would lose their sublime peace and happiness. And so then he thought that perhaps those five ascetics who had abandoned him who had shunned him when he undertook to feed his body and to support his life with food. Maybe they would be able to understand if they could overcome their wrong view that torturing themselves was, was the way to go. They had spent six years with the Bodhisattva practicing austerity and fully convinced that he would be the one to show them the way to freedom. But they were so blinded by the view at the time that asceticism was the, only, was the way to enlightenment, that when they saw him partaking in solid food, strengthening his body, they thought, for sure he had abandoned the right path and gone back to the fruitless practice of sensual indulgence. So he thought, well, I will teach them. I will explain to them the, the wrongness of their way of thinking. So he walked on the long walk from Gaia to Isipatana, the Mingadaya, the, the forest, the game refuge, the deer park called Isipatana. And as he approached, the five monks expressed disdain, seeing him well-fed with a bright and beautiful complexion, and were angry and turned off, repulsed by his appearance. And they said, here comes that reckless Gautama. They wouldn't even call him teacher. Not our teacher. 
And they said they agreed amongst themselves that they wouldn't treat him like a teacher anymore. As far as they were concerned, he was no longer the teacher. He was indulgent. It's quite remarkable considering how sure they were, especially Kundanya. Kundanya, the oldest of the five, was sure that no question the Buddha would become a Buddha. The Bodhisattva would become a Buddha. And yet here he was, disappointed and equally convinced that now the Bodhisattva had no chance. The Buddha had no chance of becoming a Buddha. So they shunned him. They said, let's just, let's not treat him. We'll stand up and we can greet him respectfully by standing up. Oh no, not even standing up, by offering him a seat. Because that's a cordial thing to do. We'll offer him a seat, but we won't stand up like he's our teacher. We won't take his bowl and robes like as though we were attending on him. And they agreed they would just sit there and point out a seat if he wanted to sit. But as the Buddha came closer, they weren't able to keep to that. Greatness is greatness, after all. And as the Buddha came close, without even really realizing it, one of them got up. They all stood up. One of them took the Buddha's bowl, another took his, his extra robe. The third one prepared a seat, and they gave him a high seat to sit on. But they still referred to him, they still... addressed him as Gautama, refusing to acknowledge that he was their teacher. And the Buddha said, oh, you, you no longer, no longer very respectful. He said, you shouldn't, you should be, be open to listening. He said, I've, I found, I found the way to deathless freedom from the rounds of rebirth and samsara. And they looked at him and they said, Bhogotama, you couldn't, you couldn't find the way to freedom from samsara. Even when you were engaged in religious practice, how could you find it now that you have given up religious practice? And the Buddha said, oh, I haven't given up religious practice, don't say that. I found the way to the deathless. A second time they refused, refused to believe. Didn't. They rejected his claim. And a third time, but after the third time they rejected his claim, the Buddha changed his tack, sort of a so Socratic, and the Buddha was before Socrates, I think, but he used the same sort of questioning to help people to think about something a different way. Yeah, he asked them, he said, monks, bhikkhus, have I ever spoken like this before. You know me. 
you know, I would, do you think I would lie to you? Is this something I am inclined to do? And there's a boldness to his question. Challenging them to commit to what they were really suggesting, that the Buddha was now a liar. Not, and the worst kind of liar. He was a fraud, claiming enlightenment of all things. You really think that is who I am? Is that? Are you really willing to go out on that limb? And have the limb break off and you fall because it's absolutely inconceivable. And this made them uncomfortable. To think that that's actually what they were accusing their most esteemed teacher of, that they had actually gone to that extreme of refusing to give him any benefit of the doubt as their teacher, that they had not even acknowledged that he might know something that they didn't know, when in fact that was what their whole relationship was based upon. A teacher is supposed to challenge you. If when the, te when the teaching becomes challenging, you react, and you revolt against the teaching just because it doesn't go with your own limited view on reality, then what kind of a student are you? It really put things in perspective for them. You can feel it when you, just reading the text, you, you get a sense of the awkwardness of their position. And they said to him, no. No, indeed, Bhante. And this for the first time they acknowledged that he was actually someone they should be a little bit less disrespectful towards. said, no, Bhante, we haven't. That's, that's true. And he said, listen, monks. I will teach you. If you listen carefully, you too can free yourselves. And then he taught the Dhamma Chakapavatana Sutta, the most profound teaching the world had ever heard. It's called the turning of the wheel of the Dhamma, as according to the Buddha's words at the end of the sutta. This was it. This was the doorway. This was the event before which there was no possibility for anyone in the world to become free from suffering. And after which there was a door open for all people with who had eyes. All people whose vision was unimpaired and who would be able to see the Dhamma, see the truth for themselves. The turning of the wheel that couldn't be unturned, Buddha said. You couldn't prevent people once the knowledge was out there. It's, it's a testament to the greatness of knowledge, the greatness of truth.
for other things of benefit. There are ways of preventing it from reaching people, but knowledge is so powerful and it moves so quickly, so easily transportable. And we can see how the Buddhist teachings spread like wildfire and we even hear about it now in the West after all these years, thousands of years, thousands of years. We still see the teaching transforming people's lives without any reliance upon blind faith or indoctrination. We see just the truth reaching out like the roots of the Bodhi tree, bringing enlightenment to the world. So in brief, the talk isn't all that long, but it contains very profound truths, basically in two sections. And you might say that the first section was specifically directed towards ascetics like the five listeners, because the Buddha reminds them that, or not reminds them, but instructs them that while, while sensual pleasure is not of any benefit, sensual displeasure or pain is also of no benefit. That, In fact, over the six years that they had practiced, they had gained nothing in the way of knowledge or insight, hadn't benefited from it in any way. If you think about many religious practices, they do take this form where we are instructed to practice in a certain way and we feel reassured because only some only because someone else said that it's the right way, but with no evidence that it's a, of any benefit to us whatsoever. Our meditation can even feel that way sometime. But meditation is not like that. And in fact, meditation is transformative here and now without having to depend on some future goal. The problem is that we fixate and focus on those sorts of goals, but meditation here and now and mindfulness here and now is transformative. But these monks, for six years, they had been practicing in a way that really brought them nothing, but it was simply their view, their belief that it was the right path that kept them going. The Buddha said, that is also useless. And so he taught these two extremes, dweme pikave antampapajite nanasevitabha. There are these two extremes that one who has left the world behind in search of freedom from suffering should, should not should not go to at all should not incline towards in the slightest it's interesting how this morning in this in the sutta study we were actually talking about this very thing this concept of pleasure and pain how in fact pleasure and pain are meaningless it's not it's not actually the case that there's anything wrong with them. 
And that was a big realization of the Buddha when he realized that pleasure was actually not a problem and pain was nothing special. Many who come to Buddhist, Buddhist meditation, Buddhist practice, think of spirituality as pleasant and are discouraged when it isn't so pleasant, thinking that pleasure is somehow a part of the goodness of it. But in the time of the Buddha, it was the opposite. There was a greater sense that pleasure had never brought anyone any enlightenment. And so real religious practice was torturing oneself. It's an expectation that it should be painful. And yet, unrelated to the audience, this teaching has had a profound impact on those who have come across the Buddhist teaching as reminding us reminding us actually of the of this this simple truth that pleasure and pain are inconsequential in the goodness of something, the goodness of a state. Inconsequential in the quest for happiness and freedom from suffering. Suffering doesn't lead to suffering and happiness doesn't lead to happiness. It is goodness that leads to happiness and evil that leads to suffering. And so he said once he realized that these two extremes were useless and harmful, he said, realizing that, he found the middle way. The middle way that did lead to vision, insight, enlightenment. And then he taught that middle way, he said, the middle way is this Eightfold Noble Path. That's the first time his path had been laid down. He presented to them a path that was perfect and complete with its eight factors, right view, right thought, right speech, right action, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. And that pretty much was the first part of the sutta. And then in a way, probably realized, uh, understanding that the ascetics had changed and, and become open to this new way, that they were no longer sure of themselves, that torture was the way. This new presentation had them thinking, had them thinking of a third possibility, that maybe it is true that torturing oneself is no better than indulging in pleasure. After all, what had they gained in their practice of torturing? How, how was it related? How is there a relationship between torture and insight, wisdom? And so then the Buddha said, here's the teaching, here's the truth. And he taught the four noble truths. This is the heart of the sutta. He said, this is what constitutes enlightenment, the Four Noble Truths. 
But the Four Noble Truths in their three aspects, and this is an aspect of the Four Noble Truths that isn't often well understood and recognized. We often hear about the Four Noble Truths and we read about what the Four Noble Truths are. Any good book on Buddhism will tell you what the Four Noble Truths are, but not all of them, I think, will tell you that in fact there are twelve aspects of the Four Noble Truths. Each one has three, four times three is twelve. And that's the heart of the sutta. The Buddha said, before realizing these twelve aspects of the Four Noble Truths, I didn't consider that I was enlightened. But once realizing these twelve aspects, then I realized, then I claimed that that's what it was. That's what it is that constitutes enlightenment. That is it which frees you from suffering. So the first noble truth is the truth of suffering. This is commonly known. But what isn't as commonly known is our relationship, our, our, what our relationship to suffering should be. And we think and we understand from Buddhism that the goal is freedom from suffering. So we think of path as escaping suffering. What should we do about suffering? Oh, escape from it. That's actually not at all what we're supposed to do in regards to suffering. The goal in regards to suffering is to understand it. This is the second aspect of the first noble truth. We should fully understand it. And only once we've understood it can we say we've done our duty, we've done what needs to be done. And that's the third aspect. So we have satcha, kitcha, kata. These are the three aspects. The satcha is the truth. The truth of suffering is there is suffering. Simple. Simple, but actually not as simple as it might seem. The point is that many of the things which we think are bringing us pleasure or happiness are not. Things we think are satisfying us are actually not satisfying. And so understanding that, right, understanding that many of the things we cling to in the hopes of finding satisfaction and happiness are not are not capable of bringing us those things. This is where the truths of impermanence and non-self come in. Uncontrollable, unpredictable, these things are not in any way, shape or form able to satisfy us because they are in constant, they are unwieldy, unmanageable. Once we realize that, that's that's the the duty, that's what needs to be done. And so what this means is that through the practice of meditation, through the practice of mindfulness, their understanding of the fourth noble truth is not or the first noble truth is not intellectual. It's not something we gain from studying something we come to see for ourselves. 
like them to change our perspective on the things that we cling to. The second noble truth is the cause of suffering. And the duty or the, the work that needs to be done in regards to the second noble truth is abandonment. We should abandon it. And these two go together. There is really no need to do one and then the other or, or work on both individually. Once you understand those things that we cling to to be suffering, what happens? Well, you stop clinging to them. You abandon that craving, that clinging for them. Our obsession with fixing our problems and making things out to be problems that need to be fixed this is what causes us to suffer. And when we realize this, when we see how much suffering comes from clinging, from craving, we give up craving. So realizing the first noble truths accomplishes the goal of the second. Through seeing suffering fully and clearly, seeing that these, the things we cling to are suffering, we abandon them. Once we've abandoned them, that's the goal of the second noble truth. Got that. It's done. For the third noble truth, the third noble truth is the cessation of suffering. And the cessation of suffering is simply, with the cessation of craving comes the cessation of suffering. Not so hard to understand. Simple truths, right? These are not complex or esoteric truths. Profound to be sure, but profound somewhat in their simplicity, in their purity. And what's the cessation, what's the duty in regards to the cessation of suffering? To experience it for ourselves. So here there's no There's no uncertainty here. No possibility for any kind of intellectual appreciation of the truths. One must realize for oneself this state. The cessation of suffering. Which makes us remember that, all of these remember, makes us remember that the Four Noble Truths is not an intellectual, theoretical teaching. They are the heart of our practice. They are the core of the principles behind which Buddhism is established, founded. My Buddhism often gets a, such a bad rap and people hear that it's all about suffering and it gets a bad rap because of our wrong inclination towards running away from suffering, fixing suffering, as opposed to trying to understand the problem and really and truly abandoning the cause of suffering opposed to trying to abandon suffering, which isn't the problem. 
try to try to escape suffering when it's in fact our obsession with suffering obsession with escaping suffering that's the problem our obsession with running away with experiencing pleasure only Once we've experienced, once we've realized the cessation of suffering for ourselves, that's the, we've done our duty in regards to the third noble truth. The fourth noble truth is the path, the eightfold noble path. And the eightfold noble path is to be cultivated. That's the most complete description of the path of practice. It includes ethics includes concentration and, and wisdom through the development of ethics and concentration and more wis and wisdom through cultivating that through perfecting it this is how the other three become affected we see suffering clearly through our focus and our insight. We abandon the cause and experience the cessation. Once we have developed the path, we have done what's, what needs to be done. These four noble truths, the Buddha said, these constitute the spokes of the wheel, the twelve spokes of the wheel. So you often see the Dhamma wheel as a wheel with eight spokes. Uh, twelve spokes, sorry, with twelve spokes. You often see it with eight as well, but it actually should have twelve. And when the Buddha taught this, Kundanya, through actually applying the practice in the moment that the Buddha was teaching, was able to purify his perspective is able to straighten his view of reality and able to attain sotapanna he was able to experience the cessation of suffering he was able to observe and approach his experience objectively seeing it as it was and realizing this truth of suffering and the cause of suffering and the cessation of suffering and the path. And he became a sotapanna, just there listening to the Buddha's teaching and applying the teaching to his own experience. And the Buddha looked at him and said, Anyasi watoko kundanya, Anyasi watobo kundanya. Oh, Kondanya, you see, do you? You really see, huh? And so Kondanya became known as Anya Kondanya, Kondanya who sees. And he was the first enlightened disciple of the Buddha. That's what we celebrate today. Oh, I've talked quite a while, so I'll stop there and consider it's a special occasion to give a little bit of a longer talk. That's sort of a duty once a year to remind everyone, remind us all, make us think again of these things.
which are so central to our practice and wish for everyone to be able to put these teachings into practice that we all might realize these simple truths so simple yet so profound so that's the talk now uh, I will invite people to ask questions Not, don't have to be of course about the talk questions should be mainly about practice and we'll organize them based on priority and their relation to one's own practice. All right, we have a few questions, so let's begin. Is there a way to target certain attachments? Some caused more suffering than others, and I am struggling to loosen these attachments at all. Well, you shouldn't be struggling to loosen them. Loosening attachments isn't the practice. Practice is observation. It's an important part of the teaching that we are supposed to observe suffering, not fix it. And the abandoning of attachment comes about by seeing clearly. You not being able to fix your problems is a part of the solution. It's a part of the wisdom that you start to gain that you can't actually approach life as something to be fixed you have to approach reality as something to be understood and that involves patience and observation a certain resign, re resignation being resigned to the fact that you will experience unpleasant things So you know, the, the fixation on the fact that some attachments cause more suffering and therefore you want to get rid of those attachments, it implies a, an obsession with fixing suffering, running away from suffering, avoiding suffering, and that's counterproductive. As explained, first noble truth is to see suffering clearly. So that is actually where the work needs to be done, to observe suffering and to see it clearly without judgment or reaction or the inclination to fix it. When you can do that, uh, that's of course naturally where attachment uh, shrivels up and dies. During meditation, I experience states of calm, which I end up noting liking, but then I recoil because I don't want it to go away. Any advice? Hmm. Well, you're wrong to not want it to go away. You can you recoil, and that's stressful. You 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 can see that this is something stressful for you. So at that point, you should note the disliking, the worry, the fear, because that as well is an experience and and. That's what's causing you stress and suffering at that time. The fear of loss. And it's a big part of why it's not good to cling to suffering. Why, why there's something wrong there. Because that fear and worry is, is stressful. It's a part of the danger of pleasure. What, what's the worst, is it, the most dangerous, is the view that somehow that calm is valuable. 
which then inclines you to crave and cling and worry and fret when you can't get it and strive and push and push to try and keep and achieve it. It creates more stress and suffering. You have to change your view and appreciate the uncertainty of life and the stress that comes from clinging to even pleasant sensations. What's a good starting point to helping reduce extreme general anxiety and panic and the extreme fear of death? Well, mindfulness, really. I don't know if you've read our booklet on how to meditate. That might be a good start. Extreme, extreme states can be a real challenge, of course, because it's easy to advise, not so easy to put into practice. So some tips specifically for extreme states of emotion, anxiety, panic, and fear, and so on, is to, to engage um, in a way that is calming. So practice lying meditation is a very useful practice, provisionally, of course, and yet you don't want to be be reliant upon lying meditation, for certainly, but don't let that discourage you and think that lying is somehow cheating or avoiding or something. Lying can be a great way to adjust and to change your perspective. If you can calmly observe the anxiety from a lying position, that can be a great benefit. Lying is really only harmful if you're really drowsy and tired, but if you're anxious and afraid and so on, lying can be a great benefit. Or even just sitting comfortably in a way that will freeze you from some of that extreme tension. Is it okay to use counting as a way to calm the mind in meditation? For example, rising, falling, one, rising, falling, two, and so on? It, it's a little bit distracting. Like The emphasis on the calm that comes from it is going to detract from your focus on reality because you're instead partially at least partially focused on calming and so when the calm feelings come you won't be actually mindful of them you're just going to be indulging them it's not it's not unwholesome it's just diluted so it's going to take longer uh, the upside is perhaps that you'll feel more calm but it's not going to be as pure, and there's always going to be that inclination towards a calming state, as opposed to just noting the stress and disturbance, which is much more uh, confrontational in the sense of facing our experiences, right? If you're intending to find calm, it's, it's kind of 
avoidant or aversive you're you have you cultivate the aversion to the stressful states I have been dealing with depression for 15 years, and it led me to Buddhism. I have been trying to quit coffee, alcohol, and smoking for two years, but it seems unmanageable. Any advice? Well, you don't have to lump those together. Coffee and smoking are not that harmful. You can give up alcohol, one of the three. That seems, that's reasonable, isn't it? Alcohol is not something you need to do. If you feel the need for coffee and smoking, well, don't lump them together. You can drink coffee and smoke cigarettes. Just give up marijuana and alcohol. They're pretty extreme. Mindfulness, of course, helps. If you start to undertake mindfulness meditation, it becomes pretty hard to take alcohol or drugs because of how harmful they are to your clarity of mind. And mindfulness, of course, helps you deal with the stress of stress that comes from clarity, right? Having to face reality can be quite unpleasant, in the beginning at least. Mindfulness helps us deal with that. We remind ourselves of the inconsequential the inconsequentiality of suffering, that there is nothing wrong with the pain that we feel, the depression even. There's nothing to be fixed, only to be observed. And it really just falls apart as you observe it, as you adjust and adapt, change your perspective and approach experience without an agenda, just experiencing it for what it is. It all just falls apart. When meditating for the purpose to free oneself from suffering and reach tranquility, can this lead to a wrong mindfulness or meditation? Yes, I think so. Um, I, mean, I think because it sounds good, what you're saying sounds good on paper, but when you meditate for the purpose of freeing yourself from suffering, you've skipped a step. As I was saying, the, the path is not freeing oneself from suffering. The path is understanding suffering, and that involves facing and experiencing suffering, really confronting coming in direct contact with suffering, becoming in some ways closer to the suffering. Right? It doesn't sound at all like escaping it or freeing oneself from it. Freedom from true, true freedom from suffering only comes through wisdom. That's the intermediary step. So obsession and fixation on the escape, on the freedom, is actually problematic. During meditation, 
How to recognize when the mind starts being passive. When will the exertion be not overexerted? So mindfulness allows us to recognize the state that the mind is in. I guess I would caution against being too analytical in terms of judging that your mind is this state and interpreting that your mind is in this state as your mind is passive, your mind is overexerting. We're not concerned with uh, tweaking the mind or, or even analyzing the mind in this way. Right? It's kind of a judgment. You're going to say, oh, now it's overextension, now it's passive. That's just a judgment. Instead, you should note what, how it actually is. Now there's a feeling of, let's say, calm. Now there's a feeling of exertion. Without judging and saying, oh, that's good or that's bad. Oh, that, that's enough of exertion. That's too much exertion. That's not how we approach it. When there is a feeling of exertion, if there is one, you would note that. When there's a feeling of passivity, maybe laziness, le laziness lethargy, tiredness, you would note that as well. That's the practice. How can you induce ego death states to slowly warm my mind to the idea of death and dying? Can you do it through meditation? I think so. I mean, we don't talk about, we don't use this sort of terminology. I mean, the second part, the idea of death and dying is, is very much a part of practice because things like death and dying are an object of great stress reactivity our our relationship with the, those concepts is a painful one uh, a fear fearful one so we change that relationship with so many things including death our thoughts on death become an object of observation and mindfulness and as a result we become less reactionary thoughts of death are just thoughts even the fear of death is just fear and it all just breaks apart the problems the monsters that we have to face they look so much bigger in the dark the monsters look so much bigger in the dark we're like children in the dark room with the night light on and we see shadows and they scare the heck out of us when you turn on the light, you see, oh, that was just a shadow of the lamp or a shadow of the table or so on. It wasn't at all what we thought it was. What can I do while going shopping or doing daily tasks to help train my mind into being mindful? Well, a good focus is the four postures of the body, walking, standing, sitting, and lying, because they're very basic. When you walk anywhere, say walking, walking when you're standing, say standing. There's no hard and fast rule. You can use mindfulness on anything you experience. Just try and apply it where you can. This is where formal practice supports mindfulness in daily life, just as mindfulness in daily life supports formal practice. 
you have to have a sort of a whole holistic view of training yourself both formally and informally what would be the easiest way to meditate in proper vipassana way well you might consider our booklet it's for free download if you're interested in really getting into it we have an at-home meditation course it's all free you can sign up for that on our website Do you think that external devices such as phone applications or devices that measure brain waves and help to enter in a zone of concentration can help to develop concentration which could help to enter the path? Yeah, sure. I don't know that they're really necessary. I mean, it's a bit of a diversion to fixate and focus on brain waves and even zones of concentration, whatever that means, whatever that means. Um, I mean, there are simpler ways of developing concentration. They're not as interesting, perhaps, or as extravagant. They're a little bit banal, but they're much more direct and much more, I would say, honest, I suppose, because they're hard work, where you just focus on a single object. So it's a bit of a distraction to rely on these external devices. A bit lazy, I suppose. And that can be a problem. Oh, it's avoidant. There's no shortcut. There's no, there's no app that can make it easier for you to... The problem is when it's easier, you put out less effort. That's the problem. So it can be a bit of a crutch, which can be, crutches can be useful when you're handicapped. But once you become stronger, you've got to give them up. Is voluntary suffering needed in life? Take, for instance, risking to achieve some goal or leaving behind many aspects of our lives to progress. How can we reduce the suffering in that journey? I think that's a good way of putting it. Yes, voluntary suffering is not needed, but it's to be expected. It's not true that you have to go through suffering, but practically speaking, it's hard to find someone who doesn't have to go through suffering, and going through it voluntarily is important. And... That's much better than than uh, this view at the end that you have of trying to reduce it. You see. So so the answer is yes. Voluntary suffering, voluntarily suffering through the suffering that you have to encounter, is much better than trying to avoid it or reduce it. Because the effort to avoid it and reduce it is clinging. It's a, it's a reaction, and that's habit forming. See, the problem is we're afraid of things. We're, we're, we, we, we give our experiences power over us. We give them the power they have over us. Suffering doesn't have any power over us. That's the point. It's only when we say, this is a problem, this is wrong, this is a danger, this has to be fixed, 
that we suffer. Mindfulness is about facing and experiencing objectively. How does Buddhism view the pursuit of attaining financial freedom, basically the desire to get rich and achieve the freedom to do what you want in life instead of working for others? Hmm. Well, there's nothing wrong with achieving that state. It can be quite useful theoretically, right? But... The, the state is not the desire to achieve it, and the desire to achieve anything is going to be uh, a hindrance. It's not sure that you will attain that state, but the desire to do so is going to distract you. Just because you have attained financial freedom doesn't mean that you're any better able to see clearly it just gives you practically speaking it gives you the time potentially to do so right so so there's nothing wrong with it again the, the state can be quite useful so if you have a reasonable uh, reasonable assumption that that you're going to attain that state you have a path in mind that will allow you to attain it there's nothing wrong with that there's nothing very wrong with that. Of course, it would be better if you had the opportunity to just give up society in the first place and become a, uh, a mendicant with no money, which is freedom, true freedom, because you're not reliant on anything or anyone. But it can be a good alternative to just make lots of money so you're, you're, you're rich. One thing about rich people is while they're able to do good great things, they often do have to do have to do many great things because they are not actually as free as they thought they would be. And they are often surrounded by people who uh, who become needy, who express their need for support. There was uh, one man here recently, a Buddhist man who won the lottery. And even the monks are thinking about ways they can approach this man to support their projects. You can imagine, I remember in Thailand there was a woman who was very rich. who was constantly, constantly. We went to visit her and she showed us her mail from the fire, firemen's, firefighters from the police, from everybody asking for her to contribute, this and that. And so it's maybe not as freeing as you might think. Your days might not be any better off. Certainly not as good as if you just left it behind and have nobody think you're of any value and just go off and live your life peacefully. But, but more importantly is the pursuit of gain the desire, the craving for that, which is well, it's a part of why it's less admirable than just giving it all up in the first place. Bhante, we've crossed the hour. There's one more question in Tier 1. Do you have time to answer? Let's go. Go for it. 
I have difficulty dealing with lustful thoughts. What's the best way of stopping myself from becoming distracted in this way? Am I making bad karma for myself every time I have such a thought? Don't be too discouraged or concerned with bad karma. I mean, yes, bad karma is bad, right? That's the whole point. But the worry and the obsession with it makes it, again, out to be much more than it actually is. Yes, of course it's bad karma, but all that means is it's, it's, it's bad. And anytime you get angry, is that bad? Yes, it's bad, but it's not magical bad. It's not like... You've now bought yourself a ticket to hell, right? Anger is bad, and you can see that. Karma is something that you can see here and now. It, it, it corrupts your mind, anger, greed. So if you become obsessed with those things, they're going to impact your state of mind, they're going to impact your life, your relationships with others. There's no question, but it's not magic. It's not like, uh, what is the, it's, not like it's a gateway to hell or something. In fact, a big part of mindfulness, as I was talking this morning, is is approaching these unwholesomeness, these unwholesome states. So our practice has to incorporate them. We learn from them. So lustful thoughts can become an object of mindfulness, as opposed to your enemy. They are ultimately the enemy, but knowing your enemy is really the core of the solution. Once you understand lust and more importantly, understand the objects of lust, and you're able to separate those two out, that just because something is attractive doesn't necessarily necessitate lust for it. And in fact, there is no objective relationship, that there is nothing that inherently is worth lusting after. Once you can separate those things and Separate your views and your thoughts as well. Your feelings, your pleasure. And see them clearly as they are. Then they, they cease to become such monsters. And they really have no power over you. Just that seeing, that clarity that comes from observation. So we're not trying to stop ourselves from becoming distracted. We're trying to be mindful when we do become distracted. And use them as an object of mindfulness. And remember, it can take a long time. It's, it can be a very long process. Even a sotapanna will be born potentially up to seven more times. This is someone who has already seen the truth. They still can have such greed and aversion that it's going to take them up to seven lifetimes to sort it all out. Thank you, Bhante. That's the end of the questions for now. Okay, thank you all. Sadhu. Sadhu. Have a good week, everyone. Happy, happy, happy Asalaha. Happy Asalaha.